0: So can I invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible, pull it open, go up to the Vintage app. Um, I'm not sure that what I preach will be exactly what's in the app because y'all know how this thing goes. But go to the book of Acts because it is reading the book of Acts again. And I've read the book of Acts before this time, but in 2006, y'all, I'm sitting in my windowless office in South Carolina, the church I loved. And I began reading through the book of Acts. And what I discovered is so much of the spirit represented in this book was absent from the church that I grew up in far too often. Come on. And I don't know what your church experience is. There's a lot of people in the room or maybe people watching online. Vintage Church is all that you've ever known. It's all my kids have ever known. And in so many ways, I'm grateful. But the church experience I had, it was a bit of a roller coaster. Can anybody identify, say amen? Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was crazy. It was terrible. There were moments that it was just beautiful and I saw the hand of God. And there were moments I'm thinking, Y'all might be the devil. I don't uh, like seriously. Come on. Y'all know church people be some of the meanest people you ever meet. You don't believe me, go to Cracker Barrel today when you leave here. <laughs> and you will find out. Ask a waitress. Say who who's the mean folks? Nope. Anyway. And we aren't perfect. And I'm sure there have been moments in the history of this church that people have walked away feeling like our church was less than what I hoped it would be. But we're gonna keep trying. We are not the perfect church. If you're looking for the perfect church, you're in the wrong place because I'm the pastor. (laughs) But we want to embody what we saw in the book of Acts. And over the last few weeks, we just kind of been walking through this window into the history of the church that God gave us. The first to do it. And they weren't perfect either, but they were marked by things I want us to be marked by. Come on. They were so committed to Jesus and so in love with him and connected to one another that even though moment by moment there were things that threatened to derail the movement that Jesus started with wisdom and grace and courage, they stood at these crossroads time after time again and stood for what was right. It's not just the, that they stood. It's how they stood. It's not just that they, that they were committed to Jesus. They were committed to Jesus in a way that was, that was graceful and powerful. And, and that's what inspires me most. And as I've read it again and, and sought to bring messages in this 2022 version of this series, I'm reminded that the, the body of Christ must be one marked by resilience. Resilience. Because in in these pages and in our current generation, the church is always going to find itself in a position where it has to make hard decisions, where it finds itself at this crossroads where you can even go the way of the world or you can go the way of Jesus, and they're not the same. You can either take a left and go in a direction that will move us away from what Jesus intended us to be or you can with grace and courage keep walking forward and we've seen a bunch of those. We've walked through these stories as we have journeyed together in this idea of living and loving like Jesus and I hope we've learned something from these people that we can't do good and leave Jesus out. That's on Tuesday before Thanksgiving, if all we do is give people a meal and not find a way to somehow connect it to Jesus and the gospel, we filled people's bellies while leaving their hearts empty. And that's not what the church is called to do. And we've got to find a way to bridge that gap and make it happen. And anyway, moving to Acts chapter seven, because in Acts chapter seven, we find maybe the most pivotal moment in the life of the church this point in its short history. In Acts chapter seven, there's something that goes down. There's a moment that happens and how the church responds on the other side of this event is going to make or break whether or not it continues to be all that Jesus wants it to be. Because in Acts chapter seven, we see for the first time a person lose their life for the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter six last week, we talked about how there was this moment When the apostles, these 12, finally realized, okay, we cannot carry the burden of ministry all on our own. We need help. And so they got together, and they they prayed, and they picked a group of people to come alongside them. And these, look at me, y'all. These people in the Bible, they were ordinary people. This is not a comic book with superheroes. None of these people got bit by a Holy Spirit spider and then turned into something crazy the next day. Did I just say Holy Spirit spider? What in the world is that? I don't My kids watched so much Marvel movies throughout the years. They were ordinary people is my point. They were people who had jobs and families and and, and responsibilities. They were people like us, y'all. But they were so committed to Jesus that they knew that their allegiance to him rose above their commitment to anything else. And one of those men that was picked in Acts chapter 6 is a man named Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, he has a conversation with some people. They don't take it very well. He begins to share his faith in Jesus and walk through history and tell them all about how their, them and their ancestors have not changed in centuries. And if you move into Acts chapter seven, y'all, Peter, I mean, Stephen, Stephen comes hot. Okay. Acts chapter seven, verse 51. He says, you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Yeah, that's when they would have been like, what? You were always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now, you have now become. You received the law, the direction of the angels, and yet have not kept it. And like Peter keeps coming at them, coming at them, and these people get so enraged, they drag Peter out of the city, and they stone him. I said Peter, didn't I? Stephen. So they drag Stephen outside the city walls. They stone him to death. They picked up big rocks and bludgeoned him until the life left his body. And now all of a sudden, everything is changing. See, to this point, the most that they thought they had to worry about was you go and tell about Jesus. They're going to put you in lockup for maybe a night and then you're going to get back out and everything's going to be fine. They're going to slap you on the wrist. and and But now there's a chance that in order for you to stand bold in your faith, you could lose your life. And this is only going to escalate as they move forward. Real persecution Not the inconvenience that we call persecution nowadays. It's funny what we call persecution. I don't know about you, but my life has never been threatened for my faith. So I'm not gonna call it persecution. I'm gonna call it something else. You can push back if you want to, but I just believe that to be true, amen? They They lose their faith. And it says, look at chapter eight, verse one, verse two. They could lose their life for their faith. It says, on that day, A severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria, and devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. And now in this moment, the church, the followers of Jesus got a decision to make. What are we going to do? Here they are again. How are we going to respond? Knowing that this is the consequence, knowing that this is a possibility, what will we do now? And to me, as I read this, the two most natural positions that most people want to take in a situation like this, facing persecution, is go hide or be hostile. If you hear, that, okay, people are dying for their faith in Jesus, more than likely the two most logical, seemingly logical responses is number one, just go hide. Okay, if there's a chance we could die, we know Jesus. We're good. We're going to heaven. We're just going to go hide out and wait. The heck with everybody else. Y'all know what I wanted to say, but I didn't. Literally. We'll just go hide. We'll just keep our mouth shut. We know Jesus. We're good. We got our salvation. We'll just go hide and we'll stop telling people. We'll stop being vocal. That's one choice. Or get hostile, match their hostility with hostility of their own. they going to get one of ours, we're going to get one of theirs. They want to raise up arms, we're going to raise up arms. Why do I feel like if this was happening today, that's what we would choose? Because it seems like when everybody pushes against our faith and we get offended, that, that we want to match hostility for hostility. And can I say, I don't know that that's the way that Jesus would choose or have us go. They could just say, "Okay, y'all gonna come out? We gonna come with y'all too. You gonna kill one of us? We gonna kill one of yours." But there's a third option. They don't go hide. They don't get hostile. They keep offering hope. They keep offering hope. Look what it says. Look what it says. Acts chapter eight, verse four. It says, "Those who were scattered, what did they do? They didn't get hostile. They didn't go hide. It says they went on their way, preaching the word." says, okay, if we're gonna be moved out of this place, we're gonna go to another place. But wherever we go, look at me. Wherever we're gonna go, the word's gonna go with us. You can run us out of here, but you can't run the God that's in our hearts and has changed us out of our hearts. We're and, and number one, did you notice what it says? It says they were scattered into Judea and Samaria. Well, as soon as you hear Judea and Samaria, based on what we've been reading in the book of Acts, it's to trigger something in you. Because it's a reminder that Jesus predicted this. Jesus saw this coming. Remember in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. It's time for Judea and Samaria. It's time to keep moving. It's time to keep carrying the gospel. It's time to keep going wherever we can and will and should be able to go in order to advance the gospel. That what happens is they don't go hide. They don't get hostile. But the paradigm for spreading the gospel shifts a little bit. Up until this point, most of the people were coming to faith by Peter or somebody like Peter stepping out in front of a crowd and giving a gospel presentation. Now it's going to get much more personal and much more one-on-one because the people who heard the message from Peter, people like Philip, have now answered the call and realized they share in the responsibility of sharing the gospel. They do, and so do we. See, Philip is one of those men like Stephen picked in Acts chapter six to care for the widows. But Peter didn't say, well, look, y'all share the gospel. My job is to care for the widows. Like that's, like you got your job, I got my job. No, it's everybody's job. If you know Jesus, look at me. If you have chosen Jesus, if Jesus has saved your soul, if you have bought, been bought by the blood and, know, and understand the gospel, look at me. You share in the responsibility of making it known. You don't get to opt out. You don't get to opt out. I know we could, in, in some of these things, church, like, well, I don't sing, so I couldn't sing. And let me tell you, y'all don't, I don't lead worship because if I lead worship, there'd be three people left in this church. My two kids and my wife, even my mom and daddy would leave. And you can say, you know what? Kids ministry ain't my thing because if you put me in kids for, for 20 minutes, three of them would be dead and nobody wants that. You get to opt out. But let me tell look at me. You don't get to opt out of sharing Jesus if you know Jesus. That's the responsibility all of us share. If you know him, God wants to use you to help other people know him as well. There's a word, a really churchy word that we don't use anymore or we've attached it to a, a screaming, sweating preacher that used to yell at us every year, an evangelist. But let me tell you something, you're an evangelist. If you know Jesus, you're an evangelist. If you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, you're you're an evangelist. You have the responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. That's simply what that is. It's somebody who tells other people about the saving grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who all of us are. And that's not something that you get to opt out of or look at me or turn off. If you walk with Jesus, everywhere you place your foot is a mission field. Come on. Everywhere you step foot, in a coffee shop, in the grocery store, in the school, everywhere you go. And see, the reason why this thing got to us is because everywhere these people went, on the other side of Stephen's death, the gospel went with them. If you look at Acts chapter 5, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. What did Philip do after Stephen died? He didn't go hide. He didn't take up arms and meet their hostility with hostility of his own. He went down to Samaria and found anybody he couldn't say, can I tell you about Jesus? And this was not, Philip wasn't one of the original 12. He didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't a part of that original group. This is Philip that came to Christ somewhere in the, in the New Testament church, this ordinary guy who became this mouthpiece for the gospel, and he took it everywhere he went. And if you move into Acts chapter eight, go down to verse 26. I love this story of Philip leading this very specific man to Jesus that Luke, who wrote the gospel of Acts, tells us about. It's Acts chapter eight. Start with verse 26. It says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So guess what Philip did, it says 20, verse 27. So he got up and went. Look at me. When the spirit says, get up and go, get up and went. Okay. Get up and go. That it all starts with a, with a living in such a way that you're in tune with the Holy Spirit of God that will, le- God, I know a lot of people don't like this. or push, but God still speaks to his people. He still prompts our hearts to follow in obedience of what he has already said. He says, get up and go. And so Philip got up and went. He says, there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told him, go and join that chariot. So Philip ran up to it and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I unless somebody guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was like, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before his shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humilia- in humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? And so Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that very passage of Scripture. And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What could keep me from being baptized? And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. This is a beautiful story, church. I just imagine this moment where Philip is leading by this Holy Spirit. The Spirit says, hey, go walk down that road. And Philip's like, this road? Yeah, okay, I'm just walk down this road. And all of a sudden, he comes upon this chariot, and in it is a man, look at me, that could not have been more different than Philip. He was from a different place, different culture, different in every kind of way. And here he climbs up into this chariot and the two of them are sitting in this space and they begin to have a conversation about what the Old Testament says about Jesus. And Philip doesn't let the fact that they're different or that he might be looked at weird. If somebody, one of Philip's buddies rides by and says, is that Philip in that chariot? He isn't concerned with any of that. What he's concerned with is a man in search of something that Philip had. And he sits in that chariot and he opens Isaiah and he says, yeah, that Isaiah, it's about this man named Jesus that I heard about a little while ago and he's changed my life. And I I just imagine that's how the conversation went. And this man gives his life to Jesus. And there's so much that I could preach about that one passage. But what I really love is, what stands out to me is Philip, Philip didn't know when the moment would come, but he was still ready for it. You never, look at me, you never know when God's gonna give you an opportunity to speak into somebody's life. You never know. And can I tell you, it's probably gonna come when you least want it and least expect it. You never know when you're in the office or walking down the hall at school or sitting across from a cup of coffee when all of a sudden that door's gonna fling open and it's a chance to speak into the life of somebody lost and searching for the answers and you don't have to have all of them but you know one that the answer to salvation the answer to hope the answer to an eternity with god is jesus alone and you know what is really amazing philip goes in and he has an opportunity to speak into the word i'm glad he knew the word when the com- when the time came that's why we started this year, 2021, with releasing the word. Yes, we wanted you to be in the Bible so that you can grow in your understanding of Jesus. We wanted you to be in the Bible for your own edification, but we also want you to be in the Bible to prepare you for moments like this. Just imagine if Philip would have said, yeah, I ain't never read Isaiah. I, ain't got no, I can't help you. I wrote this in my journal several months back, and maybe you ought to write it down. Our ability to talk about God comes from the overflow of our time with God. Our ability to talk about God comes from the overflow of our time with God. Does that make sense? That if you, when you get that moment to talk to people about God, whether or not you're gonna be ready, willing, able, is gonna be the overflow of your time with God. Are you spending time with God? Are you spending time with God? because you are a chosen generation. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, as Peter says, to be the mouthpiece, to declare the gospel to the world in which we currently live. People say, oh, the church has an agenda. You bet we do. (laughs) It's not the one some people think. Our agenda is to make known the beautiful mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has the power to change everything. Y'all with me, church? All throughout the New Testament, we're reminded that we share in this responsibility of taking the message of Jesus into the places in which he puts us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the, of the Lord, we try to persuade people. You just want me to choose Jesus with every single bit of me. I'm going to love you no matter what. But you're just trying to get me to choose Jesus. Absolutely I am. (laughs) Because I believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe the abundant life that he wants for us on this planet and the eternity that we desire with the God who created us is found in him alone. So i want to tell everybody that I can get the opportunity to tell. And we should all have that desire. Come on. That's what we should all have. And so the question is, how do do we do that? Because can we admit, church has not always gotten this right. We've tried to. Guilt people, scare people, all these other kinds of tactics. But what I look, when I look at the New Testament and I see how they were able to so effectively and efficiently bring people to Jesus, I see their motivation, their message, and their method. Number one, our motivation for this is love. Our motivation is love. Our motivation is love. Why did Jesus dive out of heaven and into earth for God so Loved the world. Do we love people? Here's a better question. Do we love lost people? Do we love the lost people that don't share our views, our ideas, our politics? See, when you turn everybody who doesn't think like you or believe like you into an enemy or an adversary, it's hard to love them enough to get them to Jesus. Our motivation is love. Our message is hope. Our message is hope. Yeah, we have the responsibility to help people see their need for a Savior. But if all we ever do is present a gospel that points to how broken people are and never how good God is, it's not a complete gospel. That is, I'm going to say that again. If we present a version of the gospel that only tells them how broken they are and never gets to how good God is, it is an incomplete concept of the gospel. It's both. Yeah, people need to know that they're sinners in need of a savior. That's a part of the gospel. But if it doesn't end in hope, and our method is relationship. The world is, sometimes I wonder if we want to do more to enrage the world or engage the world. And from the looks of social media, it looks like we're better at enraging them. But God's called us to engage. We can never win a world we won't engage. And all of these ideas that God is writing on my heart once again are rooted in things I see in the New Testament. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. The love of Christ is what compels us. We are not compelled to just fill a room. We are not compelled just to put people on our tribe. We are compelled by the love of Christ to share the hope of who he is with people in our world. Our motivation is love. Our message is one of hope. Can I remind you what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 13? Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but... Because, see, let me stop right there. The reason why is, is, see, if you get so consumed with the opposition or the persecution, then it it, it taints the message that will flow out of your life. He says... If you should suffer, you're blessed. Don't fear or don't be intimidated. But instead, verse 15, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Keep focused on him, ready at any time. Listen to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. It doesn't say be prepared to give a PhD level dissertation on some kind of theological doctrine. It says be a hope dealer. Offer people hope. Why do you, why do you have hope? If I came up to you and said, "Tell me why you have hope," B- uh, d- um, d- uh, uh. why do you have hope? That's what the world needs to know. Why do you have hope? And here's the question: Do you? Sometimes we look out from this platform. Like, do you have hope? If you have hope, tell your face. Come on, am I also tired of watching a Christian walk around like this? We have hope, church. We have eternal life in Christ. We have hope for today and for tomorrow. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and we have strength and joy in him. Let's actually look like it, sound like it, be like it, not be as consumed as everybody else with the worries of life. Come on. I just made people more mad, I think. I don't know. It's all right. the reason for the hope that you have. But then he gives us this reminder. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Our message is hope. Our motivation is love. And our method is relationship. All throughout the New Testament, God reminds us of this relationship that we're supposed to have with people who don't yet know Jesus with the world, and I know we live in this constant tension of, of of in the world and of the world and all this kind of stuff, but here's the thing. We have to be careful to in, in, in a need for community, and we do need to be surrounded by believers for, for encouragement and accountability, all that kind of stuff, but when in pursuing community, we create isolation from everybody who doesn't know Jesus. We eliminate the mission field we're called to serve. i never forget. Y'all have heard me tell this story a thousand times. I, I had... A lady, one time we were in church in South Carolina years ago, and we were taking prayer requests and praise reports. And in her praise report, she says, I just want to praise the Lord that I'm surrounded by Christians. I got Christians everywhere I go. Everybody in my work is a Christian. Everybody in my family is a Christian. Everybody, everybody's, a, I'm just, I, I'm just surrounded by Christians. And I'll raise my hand and say, where's your mission field? If everybody you know knows Jesus, first of all, I'm going to question that maybe. But the second thing is, if we have isolated ourselves so much from the world that needs Jesus, how will we ever share him? If we have zero relationships with people who don't know Jesus, how will we fulfill most of what this book says we're supposed to do? And now I I firmly understand there are seasons and times where we have to create boundaries to protect our heart and to guard our faith and to resist temptation. We've got to hold those things in tension, that need to live in biblical Christian community and the call to step into a mission field and make Jesus known. Y'all hear me, church? Come on, say amen. And we have to make sure that we're living in a way towards people who don't know him in a way that makes them want to know him and not want to reject him completely. Colossians chapter four, verses five and six, it says, and act wisely toward outsiders, making most of this time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. He says, act wisely towards outsiders. Number one, if we're supposed to act wisely towards outsiders, that means there are moments when we engage them. But here's the reality that we got to wrestle with. People will always struggle to believe in a Jesus they hear about from you, but fail to see in you. People will always struggle to believe in a Jesus that they hear about from you, but don't see in you. Because the gospel is not something that you just declare with your mouth. It's something we demonstrate with the way that we live. And the reason why so many people don't want anything to do is because with, with Christ is because those two things fell to a line far too often. The Jesus they hear from the, our mouths and the Jesus they see in our lives seem to be two different Jesuses. And that cannot be if we're gonna continue to make him known and spread his love that we have this ministry Entrusted to us now, the ministry of reconciliation that Paul calls it. You know, he calls it the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of condemnation. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making this appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You don't get to opt out. That if you know Jesus, you have the calling to make Jesus known. I hear all the time people talk about they're praying for revival we see the state of our world and the culture that we're in and I'm praying for revival. But you know, sometimes I wonder if the revival we're waiting for is one like we've seen when God wants to do a new kind of revival. That maybe revival's not gonna happen in a room like this. Revival's gonna happen one conversation at a time, one relationship at a time. When the church takes ownership of sharing our faith in Jesus with any and everybody we can, Maybe that's when revival will really happen. So who are you going to share Jesus with? Who are you sharing Jesus with? Like, I'm really asking you to think about that. Like, who's in your mind right now? And I know know there's so much, man, that makes me uncomfortable. If you love comfort, you will never walk in the calling of God. They're going to ask me some hard questions. Yeah, they are. I'm not gonna be able to answer. No, you're not. So what? You don't think God can cover your ignorance at times? Think God's bigger than that? Just have a conversation. Or I know what you're thinking, Matt, I have conversations, it didn't go well. Don't give up on them. God's patient and his heart is that everybody comes to him. Keep loving them. Keep asking God for wisdom and discernment to know when and how and where to have those conversations. Because every, look at me, everybody you, have you ever thought about this when you're walking through Walmart? Just look around. Everybody's somebody Jesus died for. When you're sitting at a restaurant and that person in the booth behind you is being way too loud for you to enjoy your meal. That's somebody that Jesus died for. That person who's posting stuff on social media, that's contrary to your worldview, that's somebody that needs Jesus. I'm praying that God would burden our hearts like never before with the responsibility that we have to share him. So you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. We're gonna gonna worship for just a minute before we get out of here today. And I want you just to talk to God for a minute. Pray a simple prayer. God, show me who you want me to talk to about you. God, show me who you want me to talk to about you. I know that's a simple, almost, it seems silly. God, show me who you want me to talk to about you. Who is it? This is not about beating people over the head with the Bible or weaponizing truth. This is about you giving a reason for the hope that you have to the people in your life that need it. so that revival might come, one life, one decision at a time. God, I pray that you'd help us to seek you in this moment. God, you've changed our lives. God, I don't know where I would be without you. I don't feel worthy of what you've done for me and opportunities that you put in front of me and all the things that you've allowed me to have. I know that only in you, because of you and through you, do I even exist. And God, that love that you've shown me, it should compel me and all of us to share that love with other people. God, your word says, how will they know if somebody doesn't tell them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? So God, as we take some time just to worship, show us. As we're worshiping right now, in just a spirit of prayer, if you feel led to come and kneel and pray for that person that's on your heart or just stand and worship, you just respond to God however you feel led.